0: Starting here in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, we know that Jesus was taken prisoner. He was tried. The whole trial was a sham because they really couldn't find anything that He had done wrong. And they had false accusers come forward. And finally, uh, the officials, the Roman officials and the Jewish leaders uh, in a mob scene went ahead to crucify Jesus. So. He began probably about nine o'clock in the morning. This happened. But one of the first things that Jesus said here in Luke 23, verse 34, as he was on the cross, Jesus said, so this is the first of the seven. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So the first of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross is Jesus granting forgiveness to those who tried him and murdered him. So what a, just a tremendous thing for him to do. You know, we, of course, when we are mistreated and we don't face anything like Jesus faced, but some of our first thoughts, usually, (laughs) because we're still fighting human nature, is... Revenge for somebody who had mistreated us or anger or, you know, just negative thoughts toward that person. But Jesus wasn't like that at all. One of, well, the first thing that he said while on the cross in the midst of his suffering is to ask the Father to forgive all those who have mistreated him because they don't truly understand what they're doing. They didn't truly believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And if they, if they knew that, and if they firmly believed it, surely I would like to think that they would not have done that to him. So a sin out of ignorance, or whatever the case may be, Jesus grants them forgiveness. You know, hopefully we can be more like Jesus' example and be quick to forgive those who do things against us because Jesus set an example for us. So that's number one. Number two is found in verse 43. This is the account of, of course, when Jesus was crucified, there was an individual on either side of him also being crucified, a man on on each side, and they were criminals, and they deserved to be punished. Uh, As it says in verse 39, of Luke 23, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal on the other side rebuked the first criminal, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve, but this man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. So that's the second statement. Jesus grants a criminal's request to be remembered when Jesus enters into his kingdom. So sometimes people think, well... Was this man a Christian? Did he really believe? Uh, Why should he be granted to go to heaven if he's a criminal? Uh, Did he repent or did he say he was sorry? I think that this is a wonderful example that Jesus does not hold us to a very high standard when it comes to forgiveness of sins. You know, uh, normally we think that, well, before I forgive somebody, I want them to come to me to apologize before I'm gonna forgive them for what they did to me. And it better be a good apology. It better be a sincere apology. And maybe I'm gonna have them you know, come crawling to me with their tail between their legs before I would even think about forgiving them. We hold much higher standards to forgive somebody than Jesus does. All this man did was to acknowledge that Jesus didn't do anything wrong to deserve what he was getting, while they, the criminals, did. And he also believed and had a certain amount of faith that Jesus was some kind of a king because he said, when you come into your kingdom, just remember me. He didn't ask for a big reward. He didn't even ask for eternal life. Maybe he didn't even understand what eternal life was or where Jesus' kingdom was going to be. So notice how Jesus responded. And he said, today, you know, you're gonna die and today you're gonna be with me in my kingdom. I guarantee it. So again, we see what Jesus' comments are on the cross. Not about himself. First of all, he grants forgiveness to all those who tried him and murdered him. Then he grants a criminal's request to be remembered when he enters his kingdom. Now the third saying of Jesus on the cross, we'll have to turn to John 19 and verse 25. These are all in order, but not all, three, all four gospel writers include them all. John 19, verse 25. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Now, whenever John, the gospel writer, mentions the disciple whom he loved, he's referring to himself, John the evangelist, John the gospel writer. So he, the writer of this particular gospel, John, was standing there with Jesus' mother while Jesus was on the cross. But anyway, Jesus said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, referring to John, the writer of this gospel. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, John referring to himself, took her into his home. So the third statement that Jesus makes has to do with who's going to take care of his mother. So he appoints the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, to take care of her from this point on. And that's exactly what happened. He appointed John to take care of his mother. So you see, these first three sayings were all expressions of Jesus' love for other people. He's forgiving The perpetrators, he's rewarding the criminal on the cross, and he's taking care of his mother. So love for his executioners, love for a criminal, and love for his mother. These were all spoken at the beginning of his ordeal on the cross, around 9 o'clock in the morning. So notice that Jesus had no thought for himself in spite of the pain he was enduring at the time. He only had thoughts for others. Now, after this, there seemed to be silence on the hill of Golgotha. That's the name of the location where Jesus was crucified. There seemed to be silence for about three hours as he bore our sins on the cross. Now, at noontime, a mysterious darkness engulfed the land, the scripture says. So from about noon till about three in the afternoon... Now, it wasn't a solar eclipse. The darkness from an eclipse lasts only a few minutes, but this darkness lasted three hours. Also, Jesus died at Passover time, which always falls during a full moon in the spring. But a new moon is needed for a solar eclipse to occur. So it was impossible for it to be an eclipse and furthermore, in Jesus' day, they knew when solar eclipses were to be expected. So they knew it was something else. It was a miracle by God. So can you imagine just thick darkness all of a sudden descends on the land? Then at 3, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus breaks his silence by saying this, Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27 and in verse 46. So it says in verse 45, from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And first it gives us the Aramaic version of what he said, because he would have spoken in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at this point in time, Jesus, on the cross, carrying the guilt of all of our sins, because he is a sacrifice now for the forgiveness of our sins, he felt forsakenness from his Father. The forsakenness that he felt was real, and it was due to our sins and their just penalty. We saw the other week, the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus is carrying this penalty that we deserve, and he's suffering it in our place. And along with paying this penalty at this time, and carrying all of our sins, he felt forsaken by God. He felt separated from God. So he expressed this terrible experience by quoting, these words here are actually the beginning of Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1, that's what David wrote at that particular time. And it's the only scripture that foretold what he was going to experience on the cross as our Savior, which he is now fulfilling. So he asked the question because he felt the forsakenness as a guilt offering, carrying our sins and our guilt. He felt that forsakenness from God. So that was the fourth saying of Jesus Christ. Now back to John chapter 19, and we'll see number five. John chapter 19 and verse 28. It says later, John 19 verse 28, later knowing that all was now completed, And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So this is the only time while on the cross that he expressed the physical pain that he was enduring. So if the darkness of the sky symbolized the darkness of his sin bearing, his thirst symbolized the torment of his separation from God, the Father. Now, hell in the Bible is compared to outer darkness, and it's also compared to a lake of fire. And the reason it's, it's talked about like that, it means exclusion from the presence of God. So, it's like darkness. <laughs> you're cut off from God. You know, you're thirsty because you just have this sense of doom in you. Uh, it's a terrible feeling. Remember the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man where these two people go to heaven and uh, the rich man dies and here's Lazarus who was a good man. He's in heaven and uh, the rich man who was kind of evil and, and didn't believe in God, what did he said to say to Lazarus? He said, you know... If we could just get a drink here, (laughs) we're really thirsty, it's really hot, you know. And it's the same feeling of being cut off from God because the rich man at that point in time was cut off from God. So Jesus was feeling the same thing that the rich man felt. He's feeling the same thing that we would have felt if we had to fully suffer our penalty for sin, the death penalty, being cut off from God. This is what we would have had to endure if not for our loving Savior who took our place. So Jesus endured the full amount of of the penalty for sin. Being cut off from God, feeling the same way we would feel if the time came and judgment came and we were branded as guilty for our sins and had to suffer the full consequence for them. So we can be so thankful that Jesus did this on our behalf. He is the one who is the substitution for us. He has offered to do this of his own volition, and he did it on the cross. That's why we're so thankful for him. That's why we praise him and worship him as our savior, because all of the things that he experienced on the cross Not just the physical pain, but the separation from God and feeling forsaken by the Father because he represented sin at this point in time. Even though he never sinned in his life, we would have endured this and it would have been terrible for each and every one of us. Okay, the sixth saying is here in chapter 19 of John, verse 30. So after uh, Jesus mentioned that he was thirsty, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And now when he had received the drink, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, the word finished here is the Greek word tetelestai. And it's a word that is in the perfect tense. It indicates an achievement that has lasting results. So you could have translated this saying of Jesus as it has been and forever remains accomplished. That's what he meant when he said it is finished in the language in, in which it is written here. It has been And forever remains accomplished. What's he talking about? Well, what he has just accomplished by his death on the cross. He has made a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. By hanging on the cross, suffering, and dying on there, as I said, he is our substitute. He is our savior. He did this so that we can be saved and not have to go through what he went through because of our sins. He is the faultless one. He is the guiltless one. We are the ones who are guilty and deserve it. But just like, you know, the innocent animals that were killed at the temple in Jerusalem over the course of centuries, those animals didn't deserve to die. They were guiltless. They were innocent. But they were put to death as a substitution for the sins of the people of Israel, the Israelites, because it symbolized what Jesus would do. He is the one who didn't deserve death, but he stepped in at the last minute on our behalf, and he suffered it so that we don't have to suffer it. So instead of death, we now have life, and life eternal through him. And because he has finished the work of sin-bearing, there is nothing left for us to do. There's nothing left for us to add to it, to contribute to it, because the work of salvation is done. It is a gift. It is based on grace, and it is a free gift. So we all have a choice in this life. Once we hear the gospel and hear about Jesus and hear what he has done, we have a choice to make. Do we want to have him as our substitute? It's free. Do we want to ask Him to be our personal Savior and to let what He did on the cross apply to us and our personal sins? That's the choice we have to make. Now, some people are going to make the choice, well, no, I don't think I need a Savior. I don't think I'm that bad of a person Uh, compared to other people. I think I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. But you see what we have to do is come to the point where we realize we're sinners we're not better than other people sure other people may have committed major crimes that we haven't but to god sin is sin if you've broken one of the commandments you've broken all the commandments so we have to humble ourselves and we have to realize yes i have done many things wrong in my life I have sinned, I have hurt other people, I have done this, I've done that. You know, your sins may in some ways be similar to mine and in some ways may be different than mine. But we're all sinners. The scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In another place it says there is none righteous, no, not one. So anybody who thinks that they don't need a savior, God's just gonna have to bring them down to earth and bring them to reality. But pride is a tough thing to overcome. And we've all had to deal with our own pride over the years, and God has had to humble us, and that's a good thing. Now, something happened right at this point in time when Jesus says it is finished. Scripture says that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So Matthew 27, verse 51 mentions this. Matthew 27 and verse 51. Sure enough, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom signifying that whoever did this (laughs) is up in heaven. Okay, It didn't get torn from the bottom up, showing that it was something to do with man doing it. It was torn from the top bottom, from the top down to the bottom, signifying that it was by the hand of God that this was done. And why did that miracle take place? This was was a very heavy curtain that had stood there for centuries. Uh, If you imagine this room split into two, two sections, okay? This big section of the room is called the holy place. And then right here, there's a curtain from the ceiling down to the floor and back here is a smaller room and that signified where God dwelt, the Holy of Holies. And nobody was allowed to go through that curtain except for the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Okay. And that curtain was there because nobody was allowed back into God's presence. God was inaccessible to everyone except the high priest one day out of the year. So when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was miraculously torn and split wide open, signifying that now, because of what just happened on the cross, mankind has accessibility to God. Jesus Christ opened the way because of his sacrifice on the cross, because he paid for the sins of the human race. The way has now been made from from man to God. Now, also, it goes on to say that an earthquake takes place at this time. Now, anybody who was not a believer in who Jesus was, when darkness covers the land for three hours, followed by this tear in the curtain of the the tabernacle, followed by a great earthquake, it's got to get you thinking, wouldn't you think? Something's going on here. This is a crazy day. And, in fact, it was... uh, The centurion, I guess, who was standing by, as it says in uh, Matthew 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So at least one guy got it. One guy got it. So an earthquake takes place just as the uh, curtain in the temple is torn. It says, the earth shook and the rocks split. And if that wasn't the topper, notice what happens here in Matthew 27, verse 52. When the earthquake happens, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and they came out of the tombs And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, this was not what you would call a resurrection from the dead, merely a temporary resuscitation, because these people eventually died again. So there's a difference between what happened to these people and the resurrection of the dead that we're looking forward to. The resurrection that Jesus... Uh, experienced on Easter Sunday morning. So when it comes to resurrection, that's when a body is literally changed from mortal to immortal. That's what happened to Jesus when he rose from the tomb. He was no longer the same. He went into the tomb as a physical human being, fully God and fully man, but he was a physical human being. When he came out of the tomb, he just radiated light. He was born again. He was, I I should say, not born again, but he was transformed. He was uh, glorified. That's what resurrection from the dead means. That's what's going to happen to us when Jesus Christ returns. Now, what happened to these people at the time of Jesus' uh, death on the cross, they were resuscitated. They did come back to life, but they only lived for a temporary time. They were not resurrected as Jesus was resurrected. In fact, in fact, the scripture says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him will be resurrected. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. So, what happened to these people, I mean, was shocking enough because you just you know, buried Uncle Charlie a couple of weeks ago, and here he comes walking down the street. That's a miracle. He was resuscitated, and it was kind of a a foretaste of what the resurrection will eventually be. But it was a a profound miracle, and I'm sure it was shocking to many of the people to see some of the Old Testament saints come back to life, even temporarily. So all of this stuff happened in relation to Jesus' death on the cross. And let's turn to number seven, the, the, the seventh and final saying, It's found in Luke 23 and verse 46. Luke 23 and verse 46. The final of the seven sayings, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now that reminds us that we all have a spirit Jesus had a spirit, we have a spirit. And when we die, what happens to us? Well, our body goes limp and is dead, but there is a spirit, there is something inside of us that God placed there that goes back to him. So he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the same thing happens to us when we die. There's something in us that God has created, a spirit that he has placed in us, that goes back to dwell with God when the body goes to the grave. So our life continues, in a sense. And uh, the time will come when Jesus returns and we're resurrected with a glorified body, just like Jesus's. So uh, it's interesting to note that in all four Gospels, none of the Gospel writers say he died. Now, Jesus indeed was dead, but they don't word it that way, that, well, at this point, Jesus died. They don't want to give the impression that death claimed him. Think about that. And that he had to yield to death's authority somehow. Death did not claim Jesus as its victim. Death is not more powerful than Jesus. and Jesus did not have to submit to death. Jesus seized death in victory. That's the way the Gospel writers are portraying it. He died of his own free will and under his own terms. Think about that. This was all planned out when he became our sacrifice and our savior on the cross. It's not that you know Jesus cowered under the power of death and had to die because death claimed him. Jesus seized death in victory, and even though he did die, he died of his own free will and under his own terms. And by doing that, he has now conquered and destroyed the power of death. Amen. Not only over himself, but over his people over you and over me Jesus has conquered and claimed victory over death for you and for me so you see when our time comes and we die we're not cowering under the power of death we know that we have a savior who through his death on the cross seized death in victory and conquered it. So death is no longer the end for anybody because our life goes on beyond death because of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to turn there. And these are very encouraging words because we all have to deal with death, whether it's our own or whether it's our loved ones as they grow old and die or die from this or die from that, we don't mourn the way other people mourn because we know there is more beyond death that many people don't understand or maybe even believe in. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54, when the perishable mortal people, has been closed with the imperishable. That's what's going to happen at our resurrection from the dead. That's what happened to Jesus when he rose from his tomb on Easter. He was no longer physical. He was glorified. And that's the same thing that's going to happen to us. A new life, a new kind of existence. No longer a mortal body that's going to hurt and get old and die. Now an imperishable body and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death, notice, has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, as if you could talk to death now, the, the death that everybody fears and knows is coming someday, we can say, death, where is your victory? You no longer have sway over us because of Jesus Christ. He has conquered death and ensured eternal life for us. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't have to look at death as the end of all things and as some terrible thing that's stalking us and someday it's going to get a hold of us and we're going to have to submit to it. That's not the way Jesus looked at death and that's not the way we should look at death. Jesus has promised us and guaranteed us life beyond death and it's going to be a much better life than the life that we've had in, in this world. It's been a great life. But it's got all of its aches and pains. It's got its wars. It's got its suffering. It's got its diseases. It's got broken bones. It's got broken hearts. But Jesus is promising us and guaranteeing us a life that is going to be better by far. And the reason he can guarantee it is because he has conquered that enemy of ours. He has conquered death. So what's the instruction? Verse 58 from Paul now, based on all that, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm in your faith. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Jesus has guaranteed that for us. Death has been swallowed up in victory, and it's been accomplished by our Savior. So seven sayings of Jesus, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty, it is finished. And finally, Father into your hands I commit my spirit. All powerful statements with tremendous meaning for all of us, but it shows us what Jesus was thinking, what he endured, and what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to do it. (laughs) And it's a gift that he now offers everyone. And all you have to do is say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for forgiveness. I want Jesus to be my savior. And you know what? It's as easy as that. That's all that the thief had to do on the cross to be guaranteed eternal life with Jesus forever. And Jesus will be the same for you. And he will from that point on guide you and direct you in your life and make your life a blessing.